The following Bloodstream Media podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes only. Speak to your healthcare provider about all medical and treatment decisions. Hello, Warriors, and welcome to another episode of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast with me, Dr. Z. And me, Dr. C. Dr. C, we've got a great episode lined up today. We're going to be talking about curing sickle cell disease. I am so excited. We're going to talk about gene therapy, and I know Dr. Z has a sort of man crush on one of our guests today, Vijay Shankar, and he put his picture up all over the hospital. I'm going to say it's more of a bromance and less of a man crush. How does that sound? Good to me. All right, let's get to it. We're now on to my favorite part of the podcast where Dr. Z updates us on what's going on on the TikToks and the Snapchats and the Twitters. What's in your uh, social media feed these days, Dr. Z? You know, Dr. Z, I think we're going to stick with the theme of gene therapy, okay? Because I, I know we've talked about it before, but I feel like it's something that the Warriors need to hear one more time. One more time for the people that may have missed it before. You know, we're getting better with each episode, so I think this is going to be a better run at it. I hope so. And there is a lot of buzz on social media about gene therapy. For sure. There's some good stories out there. So let's talk a little bit about the thing that everybody wants to know. Is gene therapy going to cause me to have HIV? This thing got so far out of control as far as rumors go on social media that it, re- it deserves a little bit more time. So Dr. C, tell me, if one of our patients has gene therapy, are they going to get infected with HIV? No. Yeah, right? That's the bottom line. No, you do not get HIV from gene therapy. I have had people ask me that in clinic or, or say, oh, is that the one with the HIV? I don't want to do that. I think most people understand that it's different and you won't get HIV. But I think for those who don't, it's really important to understand how it's different and why. Yeah. So we're in and, and this episode, we're going to break down a little bit of that science, right? We're going to break down a little bit about why this is not HIV, why this is different from infecting somebody with HIV. You know, different people use different types of examples. The one that I like to use a lot is the one that Dr. Julie Cantor uses, which is the example of uh, a letter, right? An envelope that you put a letter into. And if HIV is really good at delivering a letter, it's a really good envelope. All we're doing is changing the letter that's inside of it, right? We're using the same envelope, but we're just taking out the letter and switching it with a letter that makes normal hemoglobin. That's a really simple way to think about it. So like, Gene therapy is like you won the publisher's clearinghouse and real HIV is like uh, the bill collector or something? <laughs> yeah, something like that. Something like that. So, I mean, I think that we're going to explore this a little bit more in this episode, but I just wanted to bring the spotlight back to this issue one more time. Um, you know, there, there's no conspiracy going on here. This is truly a bunch of scientists sitting in a lab with nothing but the thought of curing sickle cell disease being the most paramount thing to them right now in this moment. And that science is really being driven by the warriors, actually, because it takes you guys to participate in science as well to help these types of breakthroughs come out, to help these types of breakthroughs come forward. So thank you to all of you warriors for helping us as scientists and physicians push the needle forward on sickle cell disease and therapeutics. We couldn't have done this without you guys. And I think our friend Dr. Sherney says, you're not the guinea pig. They already tested on guinea pigs. There really are guinea pigs that they do this on. So by the time things get to a clinical trial, they've been studied in great detail in cells, in animal models, and they don't take them to a trial until they really think they're ready to go and they're safe. 
And then the first trials they do are in small group of people and they're really working out the safety. So these vectors, they've been tested in all of this preclinical work. They were deemed safe enough to go to a clinical trial and they've tried them in early phase trials and, and now even phase three trials in lots of people. And so none of those people got HIV from the vector. Exactly, exactly. So rest assured, if this was a conspiracy, I would be the first person in the community to, to come down like Thor's hammer on, on whoever it was that this conspiracy was being driven by. I promise you, I tell you the truth. Dr. Callahan, thank you for backing me up on that. And uh, let's get to the next segment. Sounds good. Warriors, on to my favorite part of the show, making Dr. C do some work. You ready, Dr. C? I'm ready. You always start this one with a riddle. It takes me a good 30 seconds to figure out what our word's going to be. I've got a four-letter word for you. Four-letter word. Yeah. All right. And I know I, a lot of those. There's a couple choice ones that I'm not going to use, but the one that I have for you today takes it back to the basics, man. It really takes it back. Um, I want to get a sense of this word and its meaning and, and its importance. And it's a word that gets used frequently. We talk about it all the time. It's a word that uh, makes us who we are. It, it, it makes humans who they are. It determines height, eye color, hair color. All right, now I got you. It can determine so many things in our life. So Dr. C, word of the day for our warriors is gene. What is a gene? Gene, I like that. They're pants and they are made out of ha, denim. Ha, ha, Try again, sir. All right, so genes, they're um, the, the fundamental unit of heredity. So what, what does that mean? So um, genes really are have to do with family. So we're designed or made up by our DNA, and DNA is a chemical that uh, takes the form of these four different letters, A, C, T, and G, and we have a, a string of like three billion of these letters, which is just a crazy amount. It's enough to make you know, thousands of books full of, of data, and your body is able to read those letters and make RNA which is sort of a little blueprint to make a protein. And our bodies are made up of proteins. And so we have thousands of different proteins and they're all encoded on these genes. So a gene is a unit that makes up the message for one of those proteins. And all of that is uh, stored on these 23 chromosomes we have. And you get those chromosomes, 23 pairs of chromosomes. You get 23 from your mom and 23 from your dad. And on each of those chromosomes are a whole bunch of genes. So you, you inherit these genes from your parents and, and they may affect your eye color or how tall you're going to be. Or if you have a gene for hemoglobin, the beta chain of hemoglobin has its own gene. And if you have a mutation that is a uh, one change in one letter from a GAG to a GTG, it means that instead of having a glutamic acid at position six in your beta globin, you have a valine at position six, and that's what causes sickle cell. So sickle cell is caused by a mutation in a gene. It's the instruction manual, right? Yeah, it's, it's basically the instruction manual for, for our body. So you know, they used to think you became sort of a mix of your parents, but then they realized that some of these hereditary traits sort of skipped generations. And sometimes you got a dominant form. So everybody, you know, had something that looked like their dad instead of being a mix of mom and dad or looked like their mom. And so there was this monk, 
he was like a like a priest who lived in Austria in the 1850s and 60s and he was growing peas and he started to notice that if you mix some peas together like a yellow and green pea all of the offspring might be yellow but then if you mix the two yellows offspring that came together the next generation might have some green ones and he realized that yellow and green were being transmitted on these fundamental units and some of them were expressed and and you would see them but even when they weren't sometimes they were still there and so he he uh, identified that there were these genes and and how they were passed on and really he was sort of the father of of modern genetics and completely ignored in his time so he published this in 1866 and nobody even paid any attention to it until about 20 years later when he was dead they realized that he was uh, he was totally right and it was the beginning of genetics that happens a lot in science huh for sure for sure people think you're a nut when you propose something that's groundbreaking and they don't recognize it until you're like dead. Yeah. It's tough because a lot of people really are just a nut, but uh, (laughs) some of them are really out there, but are right. And so the, for a long time after that, they now knew that there were these genes and they were inherited, but they didn't know how they were inherited. And then uh, Watson and Crick figured out that they were inherited in DNA and that DNA was made up of these letters. So if you looked at your DNA, it might be A, C, T, G, G, C, T. I don't have the whole thing memorized, but you get the idea. And so your body can read those letters and make it into the appropriate protein. And now we've sequenced the whole genome. So we know what each of those genes looks like. We know what proteins they code for, and we're starting to learn when there are mutations, how those mutations affect us. And as we're talking about today, it's really exciting. We're learning how to change that. So you can change your heredity. You can change your family history. So if you have that sickle cell mutation, you can maybe replace that gene with a gene that makes a normal globin or makes a fetal hemoglobin. Or now we even have some tools where you can go in and swap out one of the letters. You know, you get a little white out and change one of the letters to the letter that doesn't cause a problem. That's in a nutshell genes. Dr. Callahan, thank you so much for explaining things in a way that only you can, man. I have another four-letter word for how I feel about this segment, man. L-O-V-E. I love this segment. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Z. Chico's listeners, warriors, we have a really interesting guest with us today for our episode segment on gene therapy. Dr. Vijay Shankaran. Dr. Vijay Shankaran is a hemoglobin red cell blood physician at Harvard at the Boston Children's Hospital. He's a physician scientist whose work has really driven forward our understanding of fetal hemoglobin, hemoglobin F, which uh, we've talked about before. We're going to dive in a little bit into Dr. Shankaran's research, his life, how he got involved in this field, and hopefully bring you a little bit of insight into the type of work that goes into gene therapy. Dr. Callahan, I'm so excited about this segment. I am too. Dr. Shankaran's such an amazing, passionate, bright, accomplished guy and such a, a joy to talk to. It's amazing. He's really one of the discoverers of some of these fundamental processes involved in hemoglobin switching that are now making their way into the clinic into these gene therapies and really changing care for our patients. Amazing. We really hope that you guys enjoy this segment.
right, guys. This is uh, Dr. Z, Amar Zaidi, with Dr. Mike Callahan, Dr. C. Hello, Warriors. And we've got a really, really cool guest with us today. We've got Dr. Vijay Shankaran from Boston Children's Hospital, Harvard University, who's going to talk to us about basically his work and how, how his work has become really important for, for Warriors. Thank you, Dr. Shankaran, for coming to this. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's it's really fantastic to be here and fantastic to be a part of this podcast and, and to, to take part and talk to, to all of your warriors who are listening in. So where shall I start? <laughs> so, I mean, your work has so many implications for the warriors. I think we're going to start with the basics. I'd love to hear from you about fetal hemoglobin, mm-hmm. just just in its broadest sense, how you talk about fetal hemoglobin to patients and why it's important to sickle cell patients specifically. Yeah. Well, maybe before I address that, maybe one thing that would be good to to chat about would be how I actually got into this problem. Like I remember now, actually it's like 17 or 18 years ago, this was all because of one warrior I met. So there was a patient his name, and, and, and I've written about him, his name is Robert. You know, Robert at that point was about my age. So he was, you know, a year or two older than I was. And for 17 years of his life, he had frequently been hospitalized with pain crises. He had had a number of other clinical issues, such as um, issues with his hips, and had a number of other things that I know you guys have talked about on the show, complications of sickle cell disease. And then seven years before I met him, he had started on hydroxyurea. And that, as you know, had had dramatic impact as it sure. can in many patients, and yeah. it had really changed his life. And so I remember that I was just an impressionable medical student at the time, but I said, wow, it is amazing that somebody's life can get transformed by a medication that can actually benefit them. And what I realized at that point was, as I started to read about it, because I knew nothing about it, um, was the fact that the reason hydroxyurea had been developed in the 1980s was really because people wanted to stimulate this fetal form of hemoglobin. Yeah. So when we're all, you know, in our mother's wombs, we express a fetal form of hemoglobin. Yeah. Shortly after birth, that turns off. And... That process by which it's turned off, if the fetal hemoglobin remains on after birth, can actually help patients with sickle cell disease. And so based upon those observations that a number of groups had made over the years, a number of doctors decided to try some medications. And one of those medications, it turns out, was hydroxyurea, which worked really well. But the opportunity that, at least in my view, I saw was that here was a great advance for sickle cell disease. Hydroxyurea works very well in many patients, and certainly some patients continue to have symptoms, as you know. Mm-hmm. Why not try to understand how this fetal form of hemoglobin is regulated further? Sure. And so this is a question that we pursued at the time, and we continue to pursue. I don't think we have all the answers yet, but I think that there's a lot that we're learning and a lot that hopefully will help patients with sickle cell disease. Yeah, absolutely. I I think that's such a great story. I mean, I I think a lot of people have this sort of formative experience where they interact with a patient and it really kind of sets in what you're doing and why you're doing it. And I I read this story Mm -hmm. in, in Nature Medicine, medicine. Yes. medicine, yeah, and uh, it was it was a great article, and I, you know, I I, I thought it was uh, something I'd like all my trainees to write, but I also thought 
Man, VJ's personal statement gets published in Nature Medicine. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. No, but but I, I I think that it's also an important thing that I always try to keep in mind, which is the only reason I got into this field mm-hmm. was really because of patients, because of yeah. the patients that I'm fortunate to care for. Right. And so every time I go into my clinic and every time I see a patient, I try to learn from that patient. And you know, so so I would say to to all the warriors who are listening here, I mean, the things that you teach us as hematologists are just incredible. And the things that you drive us to want to do are really inspirational. And, and, and so I think it's just an important thing that I always try to that, – that, that formative lesson had for what I end up – Yeah, no, that's – And what I've ended up doing. That's so true. The little simple things even, looking at a slide of a sickle cell patient for the first time. And seeing how those red blood cells look, you know, those those types of things, they stick with you as a trainee. So it's, it's really nice to hear that, you know, inspiration exists if you look for it sometimes. Yeah. And sometimes you don't even have to look too hard. Uh, right. Hydroxyurea in a patient, right? That's, I mean, that's something that happens all the time. So right. sort of going from there, walk us through the trajectory you took then as far as... You got interested because of Robert. And what was the next step then? I think like a lot of things in science, it was very circuitous. You know, we were interested in how is this fetal form of hemoglobin regulated and what turns it off shortly after birth and what makes this adult form of hemoglobin come on? And just by the way, that adult form of hemoglobin is what's mutated in in sickle cell disease and causes the symptoms. And so, so obviously, the more you can turn on this fetal form, the better off you can do in sickle cell disease. It turned out that we started to try to address this problem using a number of approaches that the field had generally used, you know, using animal models or or cell models and things of that sort. But almost everything I did failed. And that was a great lesson because, you know, it taught me that, well, sometimes pursuing these problems isn't straightforward. And so over the first couple of years we were pursuing this, I was really invested because I knew that patients like Robert, you know, could have their life really impacted by having more fetal hemoglobin. And yet it was unclear how we could best do that. We were fortunate at the time because around that time or or shortly there before that, um, the human genome was sequenced. So we went from not having a single nucleotide or only a few nucleotide sequence to now knowing all six billion bases that were in our genome and, and what those looked like. And so we had a roadmap. But what was starting to happen as a result of that work was that we could actually look at how we all vary, you know, how, for example, why some of us might be taller than others, why some of us might be, you know, have slightly different hair, why I might be balding, for example, you know, all these sorts of things. <laughs> right. And and certainly we could understand that variation. And one of the things that we knew varied was how much fetal hemoglobin patients with sickle cell disease had. And so we were fortunate because at the time we were thinking about these problems, it turned out that the tools were being developed for us to start to look at how we all vary in, in fetal hemoglobin production. And so there was there was work that we were involved with, as well as a number of groups, including Sui Tien, who's now at the NIH, right. and, and the late Antonio Cao in Sardinia, and a number of groups got involved in trying to understand what explains this variation that we all have in fetal hemoglobin. And it turned out 
that this led us to one particular gene called BCL11A. Turns out this was a gene that had been really well studied um, because it has a role in producing the antibody-making cells, the B cells that are in our body. And it's also important for some types of neurons. But people hadn't appreciated that it was expressed in red blood cells or the, at least the precursors of red blood cells that exist in the bone marrow. We started to study it and it turned out it was this key regulator of fetal hemoglobin. So when it was well expressed, as it is in your bone marrow or my bone marrow right now, we turn off the fetal hemoglobin gene. And if you can turn it down, you actually can turn up the fetal hemoglobin gene. And I remember when we first did those experiments, I just could not believe how you know, robust an impact that would have. Now, I, I would just, as, as a little bit of an aside, make one point, which is our goal here was really to understand a fundamental process. It wasn't necessarily to develop a therapy. It wasn't that we, you know, had a, a perspective of how we could take this forward. But we only knew that we just wanted to understand something about how this switching process works, how we won't go from fetal to adult hemoglobin. And it turned out that um, BCLFNA had such a powerful impact that, that soon thereafter, people started to say, well, could we actually move this beyond just understanding this process and could we actually try to target it? And fast forward now, you know, over a decade later, we actually have trials that are targeting this particular molecule. Yeah. So there are gene therapy trials where people are trying to suppress BCL11A. Right. And, and those are at least in early trials showing some success. And there's certainly also work being done to actually edit the genome and reduce the amount of BCL11A being produced. Yeah, we're excited. We have one of those programs here in Detroit using zinc finger nucleases to edit the BCL11A in the stem cells. And the first patient, first in human, was here in Detroit. And, yes, yeah. Um, it's a really, really exciting idea. Was there a moment, I mean, you, you talked about, and, and I think all of science is this way, you know, you think you're going toward point A and you start heading that way and then you wind up going all the way around the block and you wind up at some different point. But when you got there, it's the, what was important. But you had no idea how you were going to get there, this really circuitous path. Was there a point where you had a moment, you got some data back and you said, oh, my goodness, we found this thing. This PCL11 is important. This is, uh, do you remember a day when the, when the Western blot turned out and you said, oh, my goodness. Yes. And, and yeah. adding to that, who's the first person you talked to about it as soon as you saw it and realized what you were looking at? You probably should say your wife. Yeah. <laughs> Although, yeah, uh, it was quite a time. It was quite a while ago. It was a, um, I distinctly remember once we had a sense that BCL11A might be interesting to study. We actually started, the first experiment we did was actually to look at how it was expressed. And we wanted to look at the earlier stages of development. How was it expressed? And it turns out that we developed this Western blot, you know, a way to look at proteins. And it turned out it was really lowly expressed at these early stages where gamma globin was on or the fetal hemoglobin was on. And it was expressed at much higher levels in adult cells. And so that really made us say, huh, this is behaving like a factor that you would think was regulating the switch. And I remember then, you know, at the time we were using rather primitive approaches, but there were some technologies to basically knock down a gene, not dissimilar from what is happening with some of the gene therapy trials now, where, you know, you can basically interfere with the expression of what's called an RNA, which encodes for a gene. And it turned out that when we did that experiment, we saw this really robust impact 
on fetal hemoglobin. The fetal hemoglobin just turned right on. And we had been working on this from other experiments that hadn't worked so well. And so we had never seen anything that quite worked the way BCL11A worked. And so that was really for us, you know, I just remember it was it was mind blowing, you know, at the time when we saw that. So, so and BCL11A is obviously important, like you said, in lymphocytes and, mm-hmm. and neurologic yeah. tissue. So how do you target it in just the red blood cells? I think there's some really clever things there yeah. that uh, have, have worked out well. Well, I think that there's been a few observations that have really helped the field. So um, one thing that's happening with the gene therapy work that's ongoing is people are using regulatory elements that allow just the vector to be expressed in only red blood cells or red blood cell precursors. And so, that's, so that's like there's an on switch that uh, only works if your cell is going to become a red blood cell. So exactly. if it's a liver cell gets this thing, it doesn't turn on. But if it's in a red blood cell precursor, it turns on and does its magic. Exactly, exactly. So it won't turn on in any other cell type except for red cells. And so that's been a very effective way to prevent BCL11A from being expressed just in the red cell precursors but not affect any other cell, whether a liver cell or a cell in your blood system, like, for example, you know, a white blood cell. And so all of those cells are not impacted at all, but only the red blood cells are, which is really where you wanted to act for fetal hemoglobin. And certainly that's been one approach. The other thing that's happened is people have recognized that there are regulatory elements or things that help turn it on in the genome itself in red blood cells and other things that turn it on in B lymphocytes or other white blood cells or neurons. And you can actually, using these genome editing tools where you can actually, basically like you would with a word processor, snip out a part of the genome or a few letters in the genome, you can do the same thing with a particular region of the genome. And it turned out that there is one particular element that you can disrupt that prevents BCL11A from being well expressed in red blood Amazing. cells. So you just cut out a few DNA bases and that's where the thing that turns it on in red blood cells sticks. But the thing that turns it on in white blood cells sticks in a different place so it doesn't affect the white blood cells. Exactly. And, that, and that's but, what you're doing now, yeah, right? I mean, amazing. that's your trial, yeah. right? It's just to take these tools called zinc and, fingers. And, and that was sort of because there were patients who had that, right? There was... Uh, a group of patients who had polymorphisms there, or mutations there, and, and had high fetal hemoglobin. That- well, it was originally recognized because there were patients with polymorphisms in that region. It turns out that the most effective part of that region, the on or off switch, is actually not where the polymorphisms are. So they're still sort of linked, but yeah, there's still some interesting mysteries there. I mean, oh. for 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 the people who are listening who want to do research, there's still a lot to understand about this that we don't quite understand. Even though I think. It's still moved to the clinic. There are still lots of questions, I think, that, that, that we, that remain unanswered that I think are kind of fun. For you warriors out there, I, I mean, this, some of this may sound a little bit esoteric, but this really is driving a lot of the gene therapy. I mean, there's how many, four or five different programs targeting BCL11, mm-hmm. doing stem cell transplants and sickle cell patients with their own stem cells now modified. You guys have one at Boston Children's Hospital with a little siRNA. There were great data from ASH about that. There's a whole bunch of things. Can you speak to any of those? I know there's probably CDAs in place. No, and no, but like. yeah, but I, and I'm not directly involved in any of the ongoing trials, but, but yeah, I will say that I think that it's tremendously exciting to see where the field has mm-hmm. come and the opportunities that exist. And while I think that all of these therapies still need to be studied, you know, through clinical trials, they're they're still experimental, they're showing a lot of promise. And so I think that that's 
very a great thing about being in the field right now is yeah. that there's so much excitement and so for much sure. potential. I would also say, though, it's important for us in, in, in a lot of times in the media, this gets, I think, somewhat mis, you know, misconstrued, which is it's great that we have gene therapies and gene editing. But I think that there's still a great need to both understand how fetal hemoglobin is regulated and to try to see if there's other ways that we can tweak this process. Hydroxyurea works so well because we can give it to all of our patients because it's a pill for the most part or for, for some of our children, we can now get liquid formulations. And I think that at the end of the day, ideally what we would have is a medication that works the same way, but that might be more effective than hydroxyurea to boost right. fetal hemoglobin. Right, so. right, right. No, you know, the, the really important thing I think for warriors to sort of hear from a physician scientist like yourself, obviously from a population that has had experimentation unfortunately happen um, in a way that it shouldn't have, we get this sort of question like, you know what, I don't want to be the guinea pig. Mm -hmm. But that's why it's so important to hear from physician scientists to, to sort of understand the amount of work, the arc of how how long it takes for findings like this to end up in a position where now we're having inhuman trials. Mm -hmm. Right. This is not something that just developed overnight. Mm -hmm. This is something that's taken decades of work. Mm -hmm. Not only of your, of yours, but also your mentors. Sure, absolutely. You had the good fortune of being around some people who have been very important in the landscape of uh, hematology. Tell us about some mentors that have really made an impact on your life and your career. I don't think I would be where I am, nor do I think I would be doing what I'm doing were it not for the mentors that I've been fortunate to have. You know, the great thing is it's not like you need to have one mentor or couple of mentors, you can actually have a lot of mentors. And I'm, I'm very fortunate to have a number of them. So one of the first people that I always mention who really, I think, had a great, great impact upon me and has actually had a great impact on the field of hematology was somebody I met as a first year medical student, which who's um, David Nathan. I remember when David talked to me at the time, I was a first year medical student. I hadn't done anything <laughs> in my career. And here was a person who was really influential as a hematologist, he had helped to develop hydroxyurea and done some of the earliest work. Right. And he sat down with me for two hours and spoke to me about, you know, how I was interested in this problem, what we were interested in doing. And that still to this day means a tremendous amount. And when I'm mentoring people, I always look at that and say, wow, if he was that busy at the time and yet could take that amount of time and show that amount of enthusiasm to say this is an important enough problem. I mean, that is that's wow. something else. And I remember something he, he told me, which I actually still keep in mind, which he had been at the time, he had started our Division of Hematology and Oncology at Boston Children's Hospital. He had started in the late 1960s, and it turned out that molecular biology, our ability to even just sequence DNA and understand you know, how DNA then gets converted to RNAs that then get converted to proteins, was only just being explored. I mean, the tools were nowhere what they are today. And he decided that he had to learn this field of molecular biology. And so he decided he would go over and do a sabbatical with two very famous scientists at MIT, Harvey Lodish and David Baltimore. And David Baltimore is very famous because he got a Nobel Prize for discovering this enzyme called reverse transcriptase that viruses use to convert RNAs to DNAs and that, that are important for certain types of viruses. And he's done 
an enormous amount of other work that's really helped to shape how we understand the immune system and, and so forth. And Harvey Lodish has just been a phenomenal force in, in the field of cell biology and has been also one of my mentors later. When David Nathan went over to do the sabbatical, he got a piece of advice that he always gave to me as well, which is one of his mentors, Bill Castle, who another famous hematologist, said to him, don't get into the ring with Joe Lewis. He'll beat you up. And what he was referring to, is, as, as many of you might know, although, although some of the younger people may not realize, Joe Lewis was a famous boxer in the 1930s. Right here in Detroit, by the way. Right here in Detroit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, and, and Joe had, you know, been an incredible boxer. He was tremendous at what he was doing. And what Bill Castle was basically saying was, don't try to become like those amazing scientists that you're going to work with. Don't try to become like David Baltimore or Harvey Lodish, but rather ta learn from them and tackle the problems that are relevant to your patients. Wow. And that message stuck with me because I realized that my goal in life, you know, we all have kind of things that we like to do, has been to care for patients and learn from patients and then try to learn more about the biology from those patients. So it started with Robert, but, you know, I've been fortunate to now continue to care for patients. I still see patients with blood disorders and they still continue to see me. And so having David, who still continues to be an enormous mentor, has been really, really tremendous for me. I was also fortunate to get other clinical mentors. So I met Sam Lux, another um, very well-known hematologist who's sure. really been an enormous influence and has been a great person to guide me. And then, of course, I've also been fortunate to work with my own Joe Lewis's. So I was, as a PhD student, yeah. able to tackle this problem on fetal hemoglobin because I was able to work with a really tremendous scientist and a really close friend, Stu Orkin, who continues to be a really, really, um, you know, close mentor and friend and, and somebody I, you know, we continue to work with. And Stu has really done an enormous job of trying to really take some of the basic science findings in the field of understanding how this fetal hemoglobin gene is regulated and trying to bring some of that to, to develop better therapies. And so Stu's been a, you know, a really tremendous uh, force in that area. And then I later on trained and learned some human genetics with Eric Lander at the Broad Institute. And that was really tremendous. You know, Eric's um, quite influential in our ability to sequence human genomes and, and, and how we can do that sort of work. And, and I also, at the same time, was working with Harvey Lodish and continuing to work on blood production. And so I've really that's had amazing. a tremendous number of mentors. And, and I would be remiss to say that that's all the mentors I've had because I can certainly tell you that there's a whole group of mentors who, I, who I'm not you know, mentioning sure. here. So. Wow. The, that, that that's is, a Hall of Fame list. That's, uh, <laughs> well, I've been fortunate uh, to have, yeah, yeah, that, that, that group. So That's amazing. Well, I mean, certainly you've, you've become Joe Lewis and you have the Shankaran lab that's <laughs> going and you have obviously a bunch of people that are looking to you for mentorship. Now, tell us a little bit about the Shankaran lab. Tell us, yeah, yeah. Tell us what you're working on and who works in your lab and that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Although I would qualify it. Okay. I, I don't really think of myself as being in that Joe Lewis category. And part yeah. of that is I love what we do. And I, I think what we do is, is valuable. But our motivation to understand these problems is really based upon the patients I see. People sometimes ask me, you know, do you think you'd ever give up seeing patients? I don't think I could ever do that. You wow. know, that's really the inspiration for what yeah, I do. Sure. And, and so I do think it's a little different because I continue to work with and learn from the Joe Lewis's of the world, these amazing scientists. But I sort of think that I'm in my own, you know, area and, mm -hmm. you know, we mm -hmm. as physicians have this 
incredible opportunity to learn from from our patients. But I've been fortunate to really have a group that I now get to work with on a daily basis who both inspire me, who who teach me a lot. You know, I learn as much from the people in the lab as 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 they do um, from me. And and so it's really been a tremendous group. And so our group is really focused on um, understanding how we all produce blood cells normally how this process goes awry in disease and, and how variation in all of us, whether in traits like fetal hemoglobin or in other traits or mutations that might cause some rare blood diseases that we sometimes care for, how that impacts the process of blood production. And so I think we're very interested in what some would term fundamental scientific questions, but I, our goal is really to try to do what we did with our discovery of BCL11A and hopefully try to do that again for additional opportunities to be able to treat our patients. And so our lab right now has 15 people. Um, many of the people are PhD or, or MD or MD-PhD scientists. So they've gotten a doctoral degree. They've done some training before and they're trying to continue to do some of their training uh, in the lab. And so, so I've been fortunate to work with a number of scientists doing that sort of work. I've also had a couple of really talented graduate students, and so it's really fantastic to work with students because you sort of see them early in their careers, you know, getting to be scientists and really growing and developing. And so that's really been a, a tremendous experience. And then we have a number of people who work with us as research assistants. And what's really nice is since starting our lab, we've had a number of research assistants who themselves have gone on to become graduate students and have are now pursuing PhDs or, or medical degrees. And so it's really tremendous to sort of see this pipeline and see people grow as time goes on. And so I've been really lucky to work with, with this group. That's great. Let's talk a little bit more practically. So a lot of our warriors are having conversations about gene therapy and its potential for, for cure. Let's hear from a physician scientist, Dr. Shankar, and let's hear about gene therapy, the science of gene therapy, how it looks, how it works, and in a sort of very uh, basic, basic way. Well, I think one of the basic things that we need to start out with is how does the idea of gene therapy or even these newer therapies that are built off of the idea of gene therapy called genome editing, how does this all work? And one of the unique parts of our blood system and one of the things that makes the blood system kind of unique is that in our bone marrow, one in every 10,000 to 100,000 cells or so are what are called blood-forming stem cells. And these are the master cells. They, they are with you for your whole life. They give rise to your white blood cells, your red blood cells, and your platelets. Amazing. And one of the nice things that we've learned about as hematologists is that if patients need it, if, for example, they lose all their blood-forming stem cells, we can give them blood-forming stem cells from other patients and replace their blood production. And so we've known about this for decades now and, and taken advantage of it. This is the basis of what we term bone marrow transplantation. We introduce, we give patients chemotherapy, wipe out their own bone marrow, and then we can introduce these blood-forming stem cells that can then take over production of blood cells. And it's a pretty remarkable process because if you think about it, every second as we're sitting here, and for all the warriors listening out there, you're producing 2 million red blood cells every second. You know, 
probably on the order of a similar number of white blood cells and platelets. So you're doing a pretty good job every second as you're wow. sitting here. So, yeah. um, so it's, it's a pretty enormous, you know, it's a pretty remarkable process. At least I always think about it, but maybe I'm, as a hematologist, a little biased. So <laughs> I'm sure we all are. The idea would be rather than giving somebody else's stem cells, if you have a genetic mutation, could you correct that mutation or could you introduce the gene that's mutated in a corrective way to those blood-forming stem cells. And that's the essential idea of gene therapy is that if you have a mutation, for example, a sickle mutation, we know that there are ways that you can address that. So one of the earliest ways that we could do that was if you have a mutated form of the beta hemoglobin molecule, why not introduce a corrective form of the beta hemoglobin molecule? Sure. And it turns out that that's actually now been approved as the first gene therapy that's been now in Europe at least approved for um, for the hemoglobin disorders for for both thalassemia, which is due to defective production of beta globin, and now is potentially going to be approved for sickle cell disease as well. And certainly, I think that there are other ways that we could think about this problem. Go ahead, Doctor Mike. It looks like you're, you look <laughs> you look thoughtful. You look uh, pensive. <laughs> Tell us what you're thinking. That was a, a great description of gene therapy and, and, and potentially gene editing. Where do you think we are with that now? I mean, you mentioned there's this uh, Bluebird Bio has a, an EMA approval for thalassemia and they were on 60 Minutes with their sickle cell. It, it yeah. looks promising. Um, this is version one. Yes. You know, what are what what are the things we need to improve from version one to the best we could do with it? You know, we're in the early days. These are still, even if they've been approved, largely experimental and, and early therapies. And I think one of the biggest limitations we've had, and this has actually been a limitation in the field in general, is it turns out this idea was around since the 1980s. You know, people thought, well, if you could correct blood-forming stem cells, you could fix any disease or any blood disease that's due to genetic causes. And so there was tremendous excitement, but it's taken decades for that to actually come to patients and actually result in effective therapies. And I think that the same limitations that were present are still what limit the field, which is if you produce, if you have sickle hemoglobin, for example, you need to be able to make up for that. And so into the blood-forming stem cells, you have to introduce a hemoglobin molecule that's the normal hemoglobin molecule, but the cell has to produce enough of that hemoglobin molecule and not the sickle hemoglobin molecule. And I think that's the big problem we have is how do you make this more effective? It turns out that the way we introduce these gene therapies often into to patients' blood-forming stem cells is either through a virus that goes into a spot in the genome and, and start to produce something, but you can only put a limited amount of DNA into that virus. And so it turns out that we're still learning the ways that we could do this better. And with these newer tools that create DNA breaks, we're not very precise, but it's almost like trying to take a chunk of DNA out and hope that that could have an effect, but we're not necessarily able to correct that at every single stem cell. So I think that there's still things that we need to do to be able to improve these therapies, to um, make them more readily accessible, and to improve their effectiveness in patients. So, so Dr. Zadie in a previous episode talked about these viruses or vectors as sort of a a delivery truck and the goods inside is the is the gene 
So you're saying we need better delivery trucks. I think we definitely need better. Yeah, we need better delivery trucks. And even if you have better delivery trucks, I think you still need to do work on what that truck is delivering. You know, are you delivering the right sort of thing or are there instructions that you could do to, to, to deliver a better package? You know, certainly you wouldn't want to receive you know, something that you have to assemble and have no assembly instructions yeah. and have... Oh, that's right. And, and, and so I think in an analogous manner, we need to both be thoughtful about how we improve the trucks themselves, how we improve the delivery mode. And there's other ways that we can modify blood forming stem cells. But even in those cases, that's a challenge. You know, how do you, how do you optimally deliver that? And then the other thing that we had talked about before, which, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on are, is that traditionally the goal has been that if you are going to introduce a corrected blood-forming stem cell, you have to be able to get rid of the old blood-forming stem cells. And the way that we did that traditionally as blood doctors was to use chemotherapy because it works very well to eliminate those blood-forming stem cells. But hopefully in the future, there'll be better ways to actually get rid of just the blood-forming stem cells and not have to cause side effects. And so I think there's right. lots of work that's being done to try to improve the way we do that as well. Yeah, and that, and that seems to come up often. You know, when we talk about gene therapy with our patients, two things come up very frequently. So after the 60-minute special, what seems to come up almost every time is HIV. That's one. And the second thing is, as soon as you say chemotherapy, it's almost like conversation's over, mm-hmm. right? Like, we don't want to talk about this. We're good. So, truly, I do think that as we get to a point where potentially we can have these therapies without myeloblation, without ruining the existing factory, right, in a way that has many side effects, that will certainly make patients a little bit more excited. How do you address that question? When people talk about the HIV virus, mm-hmm. what do you tell them in clinic? You know, what we know now is that these vectors, they're built off of HIV, but they are engineered so they'll never act the way HIV does. And so I think what we've learned is that these vectors have been designed in such a way, these delivery trucks have been designed in such a way that they are tremendously safe to a point where, you know, we in our laboratory work with these types of vectors because they're an easy way to manipulate these blood forming cells. And I think that they're incredibly safe and they're incredibly effective at doing what they do. And we have very good ways of monitoring it. So there's not a worry, I think, of the viruses creating problems because they're really so safe to the point where they can actually on their own replicate. You know, they're, they've been made defective from, from being able to replicate. We can make them in the laboratory and then they could be introduced to blood forming stem cells. After that, they just introduce some DNA into the genome and that's it. They're, they're a one delivery vehicle yeah. and that's it. That's they're, it. Th- that's it. Decades of work has gone into that and we now know that they're very safe but I, so I think that that's definitely um, something that's that's happened as a result of the field advancing. I think in a similar way, my hope is that our 
use of chemotherapy, which has been you know something that we've done for decades now, will hopefully move on to some of these other therapies that are safer and, and, and less toxic. And and I think we you know that's I think the exciting part of being part of seeing medicine evolve the way it has, which is even during my own lifetime as as a physician, I've seen things enormously improve, and and I'm very hopeful that we'll see tremendous improvements in the coming years. So the chemo, we've been sort of stuck with. It clears out the bone marrow cells that are there that are making sickled hemoglobin, and it clears space so that these new stem cells can sort of go in and start making the, the uh, new cells that have the new form of hemoglobin that you put in with the, with the gene. The chemo obviously has a lot of side effects, and you mentioned maybe some non-chemo approaches. These might be things like antibodies that go after stem cells or drugs that specifically target stem cells. Can you see an approach where we don't have to do any of that, where you just uh, take a pill off the shelf, uh, injection that you get, and it goes and fixes the stem cells, or is, is that too much science fiction? I think that there is a lot of things that we have to do before we can practically make it so that people can get what we would term in vivo gene therapy. So for example, there have been experiments that people have done in animal models where they can basically take the blood forming stem cells and have them go into the circulation. Most of them reside in your bone marrow and you're usually just, you know, dormant and laying there resting, you know, like you would overnight. Yeah, sure. And then you can get them to come out and you can actually then give them other types of viruses and, and have those viruses potentially go into the blood-forming stem cells. Turns out that in, then you don't need to give chemotherapy because then those corrected blood-forming stem cells then go back to the bone marrow. It turns out that practically doing that efficiently is hard to do. The Gates Foundation and the NIH, right, right. As, as you may have talked to some of the, the listeners about, has put an enormous amount of money. I mean, they're putting in $200 million to try to do precisely this for sickle cell disease, which is, can we actually give people a gene therapy just as an injection, just as you would, for example, with um, a medication, and then you could just go home and, and it would act. I think we're a little ways away from that, but I, I do think that there's hope for the future that that sort of thing can be developed. I think as a hematologist, what I'm even maybe more excited about in, in the nearer term is that maybe there's ways to do this without needing to correct those blood-forming stem cells. Maybe there's ways to take advantage of what we're learning from biology to not just be able to introduce or correct a blood-forming stem cell, but rather to tweak fetal hemoglobin. I mean, after all, we all expressed <coughs> fetal hemoglobin once upon a time. That's right. Yeah. Why is it that we can't tweak the process to get more fetal hemoglobin produced? And so I'm, I'm hopeful that there will be things and there will be advances that happen in the coming years that allow us to do that. So like a hydroxyurea, but just a little better. Get your fetal hemoglobin higher, get your hemoglobin higher, protects you a little bit more. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Amazing. Enough. I am so excited to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. And I, it, we heard about so much great stuff. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. And, and, and I would just repeat that for all the warriors out there, it's you who really inspire us. And so I just wanted to say how grateful I am that you're listening, that, you know, that you inspire us on a regular basis. And I'm just glad to be part of this community. Thank you. There you go, warriors. So just know that people are fighting for you, not only, um, you know, sort of out in the community, but in their labs, at the bench fighting this fight against sort of the cruelty of sickle cell disease from top to bottom. And um, make sure you follow Dr. Um, Vijay Shankaran at Blood Genes on Twitter. I don't know if he's on Instagram yet. 
No, maybe not we, yet. <laughs> maybe we can get the Shankaran Lab on Instagram. No TikTok. <laughs> no, no TikTok or Instagram yet, but we'll, we'll, we'll get them there hopefully. Okay, Warriors, I hope you're not too tired because we've got a really good segment. We're going to talk to Dr. C about a fundamental, game-changing, cool article that's out there and what his thoughts are and how he analyzes that information and what he thinks about it. This is one of my favorite segments. Dr. C, what do you have for us today? Well, Dr. Z, I have today a different kind of article. So in most of our segments, we've talked about big multi-center randomized controlled trials of of new therapies. Last episode, we talked about case studies. Today, we're going to talk about a different kind of article. This is called a review article. So a review article is when you have an expert in the field go through and find all of the studies, all of the literature, all of the basic science. They go through and they read all of that and they put together sort of a summary story about that field. So it's a great place to go when you don't know about a field or you're trying to get the general big picture of of what's going on. So I thought since we were talking today about sickle cell gene therapy, there aren't phase three multi-center New England Journal randomized trials yet. For sickle cell. For sickle cell. There will be soon, but right now it's it's just case reports and, and little studies. But I thought we could get a picture of the whole field by looking at a a good review article. Yeah, that's awesome. Let's do that. So this article is from a journal called Cytotherapy from July 2018. It's called Gene Therapy for Sickle Cell Disease and Update. And the first author is Dr. Salami Demirsi. And the senior author um, was on the 60 Minutes talking about some of his gene therapy work, John Tisdale. Cool guy. For sure. And they're from the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, part of the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. And so they they start the review article by just describing sickle cell disease, that it's a mutation in the beta globin gene, that there's about 100,000 people in the U.S., that um, it can interact with other genes like the hemoglobin C disease, and you can have variant forms like SC and that there are factors like fetal hemoglobin that can protect you and and that there are therapies like hydroxyurea that can help by improving fetal hemoglobin. And then they talk about stem cell transplant a little bit and that people have used stem cell transplant to cure sickle cell. So taking another person's stem cells that don't make sickle hemoglobin putting them into a person with sickle cell's body to cure their sickle cell disease. And then they go into a bunch of different kinds of gene therapy. So um, one that we've talked about is gene addition with lentivirus vectors. So lentivirus is a family of viruses that includes HIV. They use that, as you said earlier, Dr. Cantor's analogy, an envelope. So they use that lentivirus as sort of the envelope to deliver the mail, which is the, the gene. And There are different uh, genes you might add. You might just add a normal beta globin. And so they talk about that. And there are several studies that have looked at that in mice and in larger animals and also now in humans. And then they talk about anti-sickling hemoglobins. For instance, the Bluebird Bio, probably the first gene therapy that will make it to FDA approval and market, uses a modified hemoglobin that has a mutation at the 87th amino acid that makes it probably interfere with sickling a little bit. So by 
having some of it in your cells, even if you're still making some sickle hemoglobin, it'll interfere with the sickle cell polymers forming. And so the, uh, the Bluebird Bio has uh, several trials, and they, they summarize them a little bit here. But in brief, they were able to do gene addition into the stem cell patients of warriors and then use chemotherapy to wipe out the bone marrow and give back those stem cells. And those stem cells then produced this anti-sickling hemoglobin, which they could measure. And some patients got quite a bit of it, even up to a hemoglobin of 12.4, about half of which was from this anti-sickling hemoglobin. Wow, wow. So they, they also talk about gamma globin gene addition. So you could use a similar approach where you use that lentivirus envelope and you put in the fetal hemoglobin gene. And this is what we try to increase with hydroxyurea. And we know if you can keep your fetal hemoglobin up very high, it can prevent a lot of complications. So they do that by, by gene addition. And then I think um, something that really is a field that came into being in part because of our guest today, Dr. Sankarin, there's other gene therapy approaches to cause increases in gamma globin production. So instead of adding a, a gamma globin or a fetal hemoglobin gene, you do things to the cell that makes the cell make its own fetal hemoglobin because it's got a fetal hemoglobin gene already. And so one thing that Dr. Shankaran found was that there's a gene called BCL11A that turns off the fetal hemoglobin when we were born. And if you can modify that BCL11 gene, then you can increase the fetal hemoglobin production. And now there are several programs doing that. Uh, they're using things like zinc finger nucleases or CRISPRs to modify the BCL11A gene. There's even one that uses something called a small interfering RNA that modifies that BCL11A in um, expression and, and makes the stem cells make fetal hemoglobin. So cool. Do you think, do you ever think Gregor Mendel is like, you ever think like what, I wonder what he would think of all this cool stuff. He's probably doing. like a really big deal in heaven, right? He's like, look, I started all of this. Look what I did. You guys were making fun of me with my pee. <laughs> And then the last thing they talk about is uh, genome editing technology. So, you know, we talked earlier about how sickle cell is just one letter changed in that uh, whole big DNA right. uh, library. If you could go in and change that letter to the letter that makes the normal hemoglobin, you could potentially cure the disease. And there are some ways you can do that now. There's these new CRISPR genome editing technologies, and there are people working on that. Nothing that's really close to the, to the clinic yet, but uh, it's possible to do this gene editing and really repair to the appropriate native gene and has been done in animals. I think there's a lot of promising ways you can add, correct, change the expression of proteins to really cure sickle cell disease. I think one limitation with all of these, and they get into this at the end of this review article, is that these are all still stem cell transplant approaches. So they're collecting people's stem cells, they're doing this gene addition, gene editing, gene modification to the stem cells, and then the person has to get what's called a preparatory or conditioning regimen to make room for those stem cells to come in and grow. And that involves, right now, toxic doses of chemotherapy, which has side effects. Right. But yep. there's a lot of work being done on that, too. If there are, you know, maybe less toxic or even non-toxic approaches that can clear out room in the person's bone marrow for these edited or, or improved stem cells, I think 
in a, you know, 10 page, really interesting read. They summarized all of these aspects of gene therapy. And you can, I think, hear from the breadth of that, there's a lot going on and really so many people working on this. There's a lot of promise in this field. So cool. And and we'll share the link for this um, review article on uh, the Bloodstream Media website. Dr. Callahan, thank you for um, concisely putting that together for us. And Warriors, we hope you picked up something from that. Tweet at us. Let us know if you have any questions about anything that Dr. Callahan's talking about. We're always happy to talk about this kind of stuff online with y'all. Thanks, Dr. C. Thank you, Dr. Z. Man, that was a jam-packed episode with just bombs of knowledge from Dr. C, Vijay Shankaran. I feel so much smarter after that episode. I'm excited about gene therapy. I'm glad we got a chance to talk about it on the podcast. We've waited way too long. I'm so happy that we got to impart some of this knowledge for you warriors. Keep listening. Share this episode with somebody who you think could learn about sickle cell disease and keep living well with sickle cell. Dr. C, let's make sure the listeners follow us at Dr. Z Sickle Cell and at Imagineer. See you guys later.